Friends, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I understand, I think Paul had mentioned it, but today is Doodle Sunday. Um, every Sunday when I was growing up was Doodle Sunday. Our pastor just didn't know it. So kids, as we're going to be reading in Ruth 2, I want you to follow along. Everybody, you can look at your Bible, you can look in your program guide. Or you can just listen. We're going to be looking at Ruth 2. It was a few weeks ago I was here. I shared from Ruth 1. Next week, we're going to be finishing up Ruth, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, but this is God's word. Ruth, chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves from after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished 
all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like rain on dry ground, Lord, would you come that as we hear and meditate on your word, Lord, we would bear fruit, Lord God, that you would be glorified in every life that goes out from this place today into our week of work or school, whatever you would have us to do, that Jesus would be exalted and that we would experience joy as your beloved in Christ, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. So, friends, when um, I lived in Iowa many years ago, and I was a pastor of a church, we lived in a parsonage, and it was a one-story brick house. It was a wonderful house, the nicest house that we've ever lived in, I think. And living in Northeast Iowa, we would have a number of storms that would roll through. This is not necessarily Tornado Alley, but for whatever reason, we'd have lots of storms. And um, there was one particular storm, it was pretty massive. And, and by the way, um, kids and grown people who like to draw pictures during church, this is your first prompt. I want you to draw a picture of maybe your house and a storm raging outside. So the leaves are flying around, the, the trees are swaying. This is your first picture, all right? All right, so this is a storm that happened at our house, and, and Marcelle and I, my wife Marcelle and I, we had four kids. They were pretty little at the time. I think our oldest was maybe 11, down to Kiana was really little, maybe like two. And we had this surge of adrenaline. We hustled down into the basement when we hear the sirens going off. And we were like, praise God, we've got this little room underneath the stairs in this brick house. It's safe. We're great. We're good. We're solid. We brought down some animal crackers, bottles of water, flashlights. We were ready to go. We said to the kids, let's just wait till the sirens stop. They kept going. We waited for about 30 seconds. And Brennan, who was maybe eight at the time, said, let's go check out what's going on upstairs. And if you hear me talk enough, you're going to hear like bad parenting 101 often. And so I was like, that sounds like a good idea. Let's go. And so we took the big kids, went upstairs, looked out the windows, and it's green, and it's still, and we hustled back downstairs because the sirens were still going. We were super thankful. We have this safe refuge to go to when this massive storm is going through. We never did see the tornado, but it was a pretty bad storm. We praise God that we had a refuge from the storm. I want to share with you another kind of a storm. There was a little girl who grew up on a farm in northwest Iowa with her brother and her parents. They were a, a hardworking, church-going family. When this little girl was about four years old, the abuse started, both from her brother and from her parents, who compromised her in ways that I can scarcely Imagine. And she lived with that for years. She had nowhere safe to go. Every day, every year, year after year, was a storm. Fear, anxiety, anger, confusion. And there, there was nobody, 
There was nobody to hold her tight and tell her it's, it's going to be okay. And I imagine her thinking, will there ever be a safe place for me? When she was a little girl, the answer was very clear, no. No. That brings us back to this book of Ruth. If you remember from a few weeks ago, if you're familiar with this story, what Johann von Goethe called the most beautiful short story in the world, it was set during the time of the judges when everyone did what they saw was fit in their own eyes. It was a time of lawlessness, decadence, wickedness among the people of Israel. There was no king in the land. Everybody did what they wanted to do. They're going to get theirs. And this story of Ruth is about God's mission to rescue the lost. That's the overarching theme of this book. And we saw last time, if you were here for Ruth 1, how God takes this Moabite woman, brings her to Israel in this time of wickedness. And the question, the cliffhanger from chapter 1 is what's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to her mother-in-law, Naomi? Are they going to be cared for? Are the people of Israel who are called to, to... live out the commands of God and reflect the beauty, the goodness, the righteousness of God, are they going to accept this foreigner and care for her, provide for her, and in so doing, reflect the holiness of God? Would it be safe for Ruth? Or would she be devoured in the carnage of this lawless time? What portrait... What miniature would God paint in this story? Remember, in this massive landscape of lawlessness, what portrait would God paint? So today in chapter 2, as the story continues, Ruth and her mother-in-law, they arrive in Israel at the end of chapter 1. We read at the start of the barley harvest, and we're still held in some tension. What's going to happen to these two women? Will somebody obey the commands of God? Because he cares for the widow and the orphan and the poor, his people are called to care as well, but but will they? Will they? And I think it's important for us to remember as we look at this story and the context of it, God in his loving kindness has given the people of Israel laws about his care for the poor, for his people to imitate him. So in chapter 2, we read again and again, it it happens 12 times in this chapter alone, this word gleaning, and it harkens back to the law that God had given to his people in Leviticus 19, giving them commands on how they're to harvest their crop. You shall reap your field right up to the edge. You shall not do that, neither shall you gather the gleanings, all the detritus that's left. You get most of the crop, but not all of it. Don't go all the way to the edge. Leave that for the poor, the needy, the sojourner. We see in Deuteronomy 24 as well, God calls his people to have mercy to the poor. Beautiful laws of God's mercy and kindness. These are moral laws to be obeyed. All right, and and this can be kind of confusing. Uh, Leviticus is a hard chapter to go through. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you've got all of these laws. They can be distilled down into the Ten Commandments. And I think we're going to do this. Kids, I need your attention. Big people, I need 
your attention. We're going to learn the Ten Commandments right now. You're going to walk out of this building knowing the Ten Commandments. Remember, the Ten Ten Commandments are just a summation of all the laws of God. There's more than just ten, but it's a summary of them. In the New Testament, we're going to see that it even is distilled further into love God and love your neighbor. But, okay, I need your fingers, kids. I need your fingers. All right. First commandment, there is one God. All right. There's one God. That's it. Second commandment, hold up your fingers in front of you. You shall not bow down to idols. Don't bow down to idols. You got to do that with your fingers too to make it count. All right. Three. Hold it in front of your face. Look at it. What letter does that make? W. Watch your words. Watch your words. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. All right. Number four. How many Sundays are there in a month? Four. Yeah, very good. Four. Four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's God's holy day. Very good. Number five, hold out your hands like this. Number five, honor your mom and dad. Or you're going to get a whooping. No, I'm just kidding about the last part. Honor your mom and dad. All right? Number six, this one gets a little intense. All right? Number six, you shall not murder. Right? Don't murder. Don't do that. That's six. Okay, keep going with your fingers. We got seven. All right? Marriage is meant for two people, man and woman, not lots of people. Right? Okay? Eight, and this one you got to get European. Use your thumb for your eight, okay? You shall not steal, and if you do, you get your thumb cut off. No, that's a lie. Number nine, don't lie. That one's kind of a tricky one. You got that one? Okay, and number 10, you shall not want what other people have, right? You got it? Ten commandments, we got it. We'll do a quiz after the service. Okay, that's the law. So I'm going to talk a little bit about laws generally, but I wanted you to be really clear about when I'm talking about laws, they ultimately point to God's goodness, his character, his righteousness, right? And he's given these moral laws to his people to reflect his goodness and righteousness, and they're for us to obey. And what happens in Scripture is we've got this floor, the basic minimum requirements that God calls his people to do, to live, And what God requires of his people, both in the day of Ruth and in our day, is that when we look at God's laws, when we look at his commands, we're to ask ourselves, okay, here's the basic minimum requirement of what God calls us to do. How am I to fill up this floor of God's righteousness to imitate the beauty and the character of God and his love, his grace, and his kindness? How do I fill up the floor in living out his commands? Okay. Let's look at this harvest, this gleaning idea. In those days, if you were going to harvest, as I mentioned, God called you, according to Leviticus, you'd harvest about two-thirds of your crop. You'd leave about a third for the poor, the sojourner, the needy. So there's a lot left behind, a whole third of your crop that the landowner is leaving behind. So this is hugely costly. And we think back to, to in this day, we read about the workers and the servants. There were no combines. There were no tractors. You just had to walk through the field and it was, it was elbow grease and it was muscle. That's how you harvested the crop. And so this third left over, it's a lot. And it was left for the poor. And so gleaning is just picking up what's already been harvested but left in the field. Or what hasn't been picked, but it's left in the field for the sojourner to come and pick. This is God's command to his people, to be generous, generous to the poor. And so we think about, okay, Ruth, Ruth and all the other aliens who are in Israel, those who are in poverty, 
they were completely at the mercy of the landowners. And, and remember, this is the day of idolatry when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so greed and money, they're not just the idols of today. That was the same back then. The temptation is, no, I'm going I'm to harvest all my crop. There's a huge economic loss if I don't. And so you see the danger for those depending on mercy. In those days, you oftentimes wouldn't find it because of the lawlessness in Israel. So the Bible presents three uses of the law. Three uses of the law in scripture. First of all, the law is like a mirror. It reflects the perfect and holy righteousness of God and our lack thereof. So we hold the law up to our face and we're like, oh, the law is beautiful, but I'm not sure that I am. Real quick, and this is something for us to remember when we think about that use of the law. Kids, this is your second prompt. I want you to draw a self-portrait. Draw a picture of yourself. And as you do that, Remember, when you trust Jesus, when you trust Jesus as your king and your Lord and the one who loves you, remember that God doesn't just see you, and you're precious and important and beautiful in God's eyes. God doesn't just see you. He sees actually the righteousness of Jesus. I'm going to illustrate that really quick, okay? So if I just stand up here and, and I'm like, all right, God, how do you see me? God looks at me and he can see inside of me into my mind and in my heart. And it's not very impressive. If you get to know me, it's really not. It's much, much worse than maybe my outward appearance would show. But, and I'm gonna use Seth. Come on, my man. Seth is um, a student at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a baseball player for the Quakers. He is not Jesus, but he is gonna play Jesus very quickly, okay? God is looking at me. When I put my faith in Christ, Jesus stands before me. Seth is much better looking than I am. He's bigger, he's stronger. And this is who God sees. God sees the righteousness of Christ, not my own junk and sin and shame. Okay, good job, Seth. Well done. Very good. <laughs> you got a round of applause for being Jesus. Good job. Good job. All right, so that's the first use of the law, right? The law is like a mirror to our face, showing us the righteousness of, our, of God and our own lack thereof. All right, second use of the law. It's what we call common grace. It's the restraint of evil that we see that there are consequences, um, ramifications when we break the law. It invokes a sense of dread at punishment. The third use of the law that we see in scripture is to reveal what's pleasing to God and for the Christian to obey. The law of God, the commands of God are good. They're for our flourishing there's a, an old quote, 20th century, like, 20th century mid-20th century, like a public intellectual, cultural critic, H.R. Mencken. He, he was talking about Puritans. And he said, Puritanism is the fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. The idea that God is a killjoy and he just wants to keep you from having a good time is like, no, not at all. God actually gives us his commands, his laws for our flourishing, for our good, to show the beauty and the goodness of God and true humanness being made in his image. Psalm 19 says this, the law revives the soul. It enlightens the eyes. It brings joy. It makes wise. It's sweeter than honey. The commands, the laws of God are beautiful. And this third use of the law, it instructs, it guides, 
Christian believers, and it's for our joy. So it should be our delight to look at God's commandments every day and, and to ask, how do I fill up the floor of the law to live out the righteousness of God out of gratitude for his grace to me? I look at a commandment of God, like, God, how do I do this to reflect your glory, your beauty, your goodness, your righteousness? So the Christian sees God's commands as beautiful. And in response to God's grace, we want to live out, fill up the treasure store of God's righteousness. And so the law is both inspiring and convicting. It's inspiring because it's like, oh, this is beautiful. And Jesus is inspiring because he lived out this law perfectly, sinlessly. It's convicting because the more deeply we look into its beauty, the more we'll be convicted of our failure and our need for Christ to fulfill the law for us. Right? I know we're spending a lot of time talking about the law, but the question for us today that I want us to think about is, who will fill up the floor of God's law and live out the righteousness of God in this situation of Ruth? Who's going to do it in this time of lawlessness and decadence, wickedness, greed, and idolatry? Who will live out the righteousness of God? And in Ruth 2, we're introduced to a new character named Boaz. Remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, names mean a lot in this story. Now, Ruth's former husband was named Malon, and that was a Canaanite name, and it meant sickly or weakling. Can't imagine a parent naming their child that, but be that as it may, Boaz's name, contrarily, has the same Hebrew root word as strength. It more accurately means, Boaz means uh, alacrity or like re uh, readiness, um, uh, 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 liveliness, cheerfulness. Eagerness. That's great, but he's a relative of Elimelech. So is he a faithful Israelite, or is he like his cousin Elimelech? If you remember, when the going got tough, he was out of Israel and went to Moab. In our first hint, what kind of guy is this Boab? Maybe, maybe he's the one who's going to help Ruth. Our first hint is he's described as worthy. Looks pretty good. Might be some hope here. Now, we read that Ruth and Naomi just happened to arrive at the start of the barley harvest and that Ruth, in verse 3, just happened or happened to come to find herself in Boaz's field. This is the author's use of irony. It seemed totally coincidental that this is where Ruth ended up. But it was God's sovereignty and providence, God's hand clearly in this, orchestrating, moving, drawing, painting this beautiful composition. And this is our introduction to change. We have bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, uncertainty. And Boaz, is he going to be the one to obey God's law? And his first words give us a clue. The Lord, Yahweh, be with you. And with this brushstroke of God, this man is painted in a flattering light. His household responds, the Lord bless you. And Boaz goes on to ask, his hired hand about Ruth, and the hired hand tells him. And Boaz, in verses 8 and 10, 9 and 10, Boaz offers the good news. When you're thirsty, drink. My men will draw it for you, verse 9. That sounds a little bit like going forward in time to Isaiah 55. 
the offer of God and his great kindness. Come, all you who are thirsty, drink. Come to the waters. That points even further forward, if you remember the story in John 4, Jesus, meeting the woman at the well in Samaria, tells her, whoever drinks the water I give him or her will never thirst. Drink deeply of God's grace. It's satisfying. Verse 14, Boaz offers more good news to Ruth. Come and eat. Isaiah 55, 1, you have no money, the prophet writes. Come, buy and eat. Eat of my bounty, which I give to you freely. He who comes to me will never go hungry, Jesus said. He who believes in me will never be thirsty, Jesus says in John 6. All right, kids, prompt number three. Listen to me talk about law and uh, what's going on with Boaz and Ruth. I need you to hang with me. I want you to draw a picture of your favorite food, your favorite food. And mom and dad, you can see them draw this and then explain to them about the already and the not yet and say, yeah, you still got to eat your vegetables, eat your kale or your impossible burger or whatever, but Lord have mercy on you. Okay, so there we go. Ruth's response when she's given this offer, come and drink, eat when you're hungry. Ruth's response is the same response that I think anybody has when they understand God's grace. She bows down. Ruth can say in verses 10 and 13, I have nothing to offer. I'm a foreigner, an alien, not even worthy to be called your servant. And yet you show this kindness to me. Boaz knew the beauty of God's law and he asked, how do I live out the intent, not just the minimum of the law? And we see then in his actions that Boaz is not thinking about what's economically advantageous. As his name implies, he's eager, he's ready to go above and beyond, to be extravagant, abundant. I'll provide, I'll protect. And we see this in verses eight and nine and 21 and 22. I'll protect you. This is a wicked time in in Israel. My men will protect you. I'll protect you. Stay close to my women. They'll protect you. This concern for Ruth's safety. Stick close to me. It's safe. You will be cared for. You'll find refuge with me. You'll find shelter from the storm. Now let's let's bring this back to us. God's word is always practical and applicable. Do you ever find yourself in a storm? I think maybe some of us feel like we're in one right now. How do I get out of it? I just want it to stop. Paul said something interesting in the call to worship about, um, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but immediately thought of this quote by uh, Dane Ortland, who wrote, um, pain is not an island, but the ocean. Pain is normative. I think most of us can point to whether it's small or pretty deep. Pain in our lives. We think, oh, I must be doing something wrong in my Christian. No, that, that, that's, that's normal. Pain is an ocean, not an island. Maybe you feel like you're in a storm now. Well, my pa- favorite part of this story is verses 15 and 16. Think of this. Boaz tells his family, we're going to do the work. But make sure that she gets the reward. We're going to do this harvest, make sure that there are gleanings left behind for her, pick them, but then leave them there for her. We'll do the work, 
She gets the reward. That sounds like somebody I know. Someone who takes our lowly condition and sacrifices for it and in return gives us a reward beyond our imagining. Christ died that we might live. Jesus did the work. We get the reward. Now, Boaz isn't Christ, but through his obedience to God, he imitates the character of God and Ruth finds refuge. This is the God that we worship, the God who provides shelter from the storm, a refuge from the tornado that's swirling around us. So chapter two, Boaz is a good dude. Boaz, he's the one. He's the true Israelite who's gonna bless this family, Ruth and Naomi. He's the faithful follower of God. And the author's intent is that Boaz is presented in this way as a true follower of God. He lives out the characteristics of God's grace and mercy to Ruth. And for Ruth, it's acceptance. Yeah, you're an alien, Ruth. Yeah, you're poor, but I'm gonna care for you. And Ruth responds in verse 13 with such humility. She knows she has nothing to offer. It's kind of like um, 1 Peter 5, um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. And we're gonna see this exaltation later in chapter four. That passage goes on in First Peter, casting all your anxieties upon him for he cares about you. I don't know what, what your view of God is, but when you hear that, he cares about you. You can cast your anxieties on God. He cares about you. This is the God that we worship. If you're looking for shelter, this is where we go. This is the God to whom we go who has power and sovereignty, the God goodness and grace and kindness, such tenderness for you. And, and the beauty of this story of Ruth, that it reminds me of this, that we don't come to God with, um, with our good works or our perceived righteousness. You just need to come to God with need, pure, spiritually impoverished need, and ask if you can glean among his harvest, and he will satisfy you with grace, forgiveness, and love. So look quick, verses 17 and 18. Look how much Ruth gleans an ephah, about 20 to 25 pounds of barley. It's like she's gone to Costco. It's enough to last her and Naomi for weeks. Naomi can't believe it. She can't believe that it just happened to be in this relative's field, that there is a redeemer in verse 20. There's hope. And then the chapter ends in verse 23 saying that Ruth gleaned until the barley and wheat harvests were over about seven weeks. Good, perfect number, complete number. All right, kids, final picture, final prompt for your doodling. Imagine you're in Iowa. Now, actually, imagine you're uh, out in a field, walking through a wheat field, cornfield, better yet, riding a combine through the field. Draw a picture of what you think you'd see. Use your imagination. What do you think you'd see out in the field? Friends, this story of Ruth is about God's mission to save. And it's the story of Boaz here in chapter two and his kindness to Ruth. 
this portrait of beauty in an era of idolatry and apostasy. And that's our calling too. One last illustration. Uh, Remember that little girl I shared about at the beginning? She knew Jesus. She went to church every week. She heard about Jesus, but he seemed pretty distant. When she was in high school, she started to date a boy, but he was a nice boy. He treated her with honor and respect. He talked to her and listened to her. He loved her well. One of my favorite short story writers, Flannery O'Connor, wrote, a good man is hard to find. That's true. He was a good man. And she found a shelter from the storm in this boy. They've now been married for over 50 years. It's my mom and dad. An extraordinarily ordinary love. Wasn't perfect. Nobody's going to be writing books about this. You're not going to see a Hallmark movie about this. But dad took mom under his wing, protected her, loved her well. And she was a refuge for him too. When there was redemption. Christ came close to my mom through my dad. They faithfully followed Jesus all these years. Simple love story. Speaking of an ordinary love, what miniature is God painting in your life? Where you seek to walk in his ways, portray the beauty of God's righteousness in a broken and needy world. How how can you fill up the floor of God's righteousness and reflect his beauty, his goodness? What portrait are you painting? What miniature are you painting in this landscape that we live in? Maybe in a really ordinary way. Last time we talked about a few of those ways, tucking your kids in bed at night and praying with them, listening to the hurt and pain of a friend, maybe calling your folks on the phone to ask how they're doing, maybe holding on to your loved one when the storms are raging literally outside the way that Marcel held our little girl, Kiana, when she was scared. All right, here's, here's the last story, really last story. There was a, this is a number of years ago, there was a special needs girl She's a freshman in high school, was starting the school year, new school, and uh, she had some distinct needs, and she, um, she came home every day, and mom asked how, how she's doing, and she said, I don't like it at this school. One day, she comes home crying and just goes hide in, hides in her bedroom, and her mom finally got it out of her, what's going on? Well, the kids make fun of me. She looked different. She talked a little bit different. Her mom, besides being heartbroken for her little girl, was furious. And so she called up the one person she thought maybe could help. It was a young man who had been a helper at a Special Olympics event that her daughter, the girl's name is Shy, that she participated in. Uh, participated in. And she called this, this kid and said, I just want you to be, um, I just want you to you know, take, write down names of people who are making fun of her, who are giving her a hard time. And he was like, well, I'm not going to do that, but I'll do something different. And so he rallied his football teammates, and he said, all right, we're going to come alongside this girl. We're going to sit with her at lunch. She's not going to sit alone. We're going to have a running back and linebacker walk with her between classes. Nobody's going to mess with her. We'll take care of her. 
She's going to be our girl. Is that okay, Mom? Yeah, that's okay. That's good. Now, I don't know if those guys were Christians, but they loved her in an extraordinarily ordinary way. By the way, did I, I don't know if I said this. These guys on the football team, they were like 11 and 0. They were like state champs. They were like the, the cool guys of the school. Kids, it's not just little kids, but big kids too. This week, if you see somebody sitting by themselves at lunch, go sit with them. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Tell them about yourself. God is visiting them through you. God is coming close to them, like Ruth to Naomi, like Boaz to Ruth, like my dad to my mom, like this football player to Shy. You're coming close, wrapping arms around them. Sometimes you're doing this without recognition, without thanks. There could be a cost. The cool kids, what are you doing? I am reflecting the beauty, the goodness, the character of God and his righteousness. You don't say that, but that's the reality of what you're doing. You're sheltering them from the storm. And that points to God's extraordinary love coming close to us in Jesus. Friends, Christ is our refuge. Find refuge in him. His mercy is loving kindness. If you don't know Jesus, come to him. He'll receive you. The only thing you have to give to him is your need, your sin, particularly your sin, your shame, your guilt. And he'll receive you. And when you experience God's grace, your response will be, yeah, I want to reflect the beauty of this God who gave himself for me. And follow him in faithfulness and thanks. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank, that, thank you that you are a refuge for us. Thank you, Lord, that you are more powerful than any tornado, that you are more solid than any brick home, that you're more kind than anybody that um, can be presented, such as Boaz or Ruth and their kindness. We're mere reflections of you and your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your loving kindness, your tenderness towards us. So Abba, would you impress upon our hearts the joy of being counted as yours? And Lord God, would we ask throughout this week, Lord, how can I reflect your beauty to those that are around me and my family and the people I work with and at school? Jesus, would you be exalted? Holy Spirit, help us to do this for the sake of Jesus' glory and our joy in him, we pray. Amen.